The following is a rebroadcast of an episode of Talking Radical Radio that was originally broadcast in December 2021. My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. actions that we are taking as a collective are always rooted in our relations, our relations to the land, our relations to community, our relations to ourselves, our relations to one another. And that's not just as Métis people, but that's also relations to our First Nation kin, our Black relatives, our folks of colour that are also our relatives. That's the voice of Chantelle Garand. They, Brianne Lavallee-Heckert and Kiana Durston, are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. All three of today's guests live in Winnipeg, in Treaty 1 territory. Lavalie Heckert is a Métis woman who studied law and now does community work in Winnipeg. Garand is a non-binary and two-spirit Métis person who did a degree in criminal justice and sociology and who is active in abolitionist organizing in the city. And Durston is a Métis woman who did a degree in environmental science and works as an aquatic science technician. All three are members of Red River Echoes, a grassroots collective of Métis people who are focused on land back and on the active reclamation of Métis sovereignty in Winnipeg. The group got its start in the spring of 2021. The catalyst was David Chartrand, president of the Manitoba Métis Federation, which is the Métis government in Manitoba, placing a full-page ad in the Winnipeg Free Press in support of the Winnipeg Police Service. This was around the one-year anniversary of the Winnipeg police shooting and killing 16-year-old Anishinaabe girl Aisha Hudson. Lavalie Heckert said many Métis people felt, quote, pure shock and anger, end quote, at the ad. The group came together to issue an open letter giving voice to this anger and to broader objections to the very presence of colonial police on Métis lands. This happened in the context of longer-standing dissatisfactions with the MMF and its current leadership. The MMF is, according to Garand, quote, replicating colonial governments, end quote, thereby manifesting an approach to governance very different than traditional Métis ways of doing things, and also doing harm to their First Nations relatives and to their relations with them. The level of support the letter received made it an easy choice to make Red River Echoes into an ongoing group. The Collective's actions have included, for instance, participating as a contingent in the July 1st walk in Winnipeg in the wake of the discovery of unmarked graves at residential school sites. When a First Nations man was violently arrested during the walk, members of Red River Echoes and other people successfully took action to de-arrest him. They subsequently arrived at the Manitoba legislature just as people were toppling statues of Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II. The Collective knew immediately that they wanted to support their relatives who had taken that action, and so they started a fund to put towards bail and legal expenses. Next, they set their sights on the Winnipeg neighborhood of Wolseley. It's named after colonial military official Sir Garnet Wolseley, who led British troops that came to the Red River Territory in 1870 to put down the Métis Rebellion. 
Initially, they blanketed the neighborhood with posters calling for it to be renamed. Then they organized a gathering that brought Métis people together in traditional ways to discuss the issue. An ongoing goal is to obtain what they describe as a landback bus for Métis and First Nations people in Winnipeg to use in reconnecting with their territories beyond the city. Their fundraising for the bus will include sale of a t-shirt celebrating all of the colonial statues toppled across Turtle Island in the last couple of years. Even without having a bus yet, this past summer they organized a trip by Métis people to Batoche, the site of the final military defeat of Métis and Allied peoples by colonial forces in 1885. The collective has plans to make another trip to Batoche next summer. Other future plans include setting up a Patreon to make it easier for people to financially support the collective's work, and in the new year they'll be hosting a teach-in on police and prison abolition, specifically focused on its relevance to Métis people in the Red River Territory. The collective sees their actions as part of enacting a vision of governance and sovereignty that they say is much more in line with traditional Métis practices. In the spirit of the characterization of the Métis as, quote, the people who own themselves, end quote, it's a sort of decentralized, embodied sovereignty that resolutely rejects colonial ways of doing things, and that is grounded in being in good relation with each other, with the land, with their First Nations kin, and with black and racialized relatives. I speak with Lavalie Heckert, Garand, and Durston about Red River Echoes. My name is Brienne Lavalie Heckert. I am a midship woman from Red River, Treaty One. My family is from St. Ambrose, Manitoba, a small Métis community on the southern tip of Lake Manitoba. And I also have on my father's side German settlers. I completed a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Winnipeg in Human Rights. And then I went on to do a Juris Doctor and Bachelor of Civil Law at McGill. I graduated last year and moved back from Montreal to Red River, and now I'm just doing community work here, trying to think creatively about how to use law in different ways. I'm Chantelle Garand, Métis human from Red River, non-binary, two-spirited. My family has been historically scattered throughout the Red River Valley, but I've always been from Treaty 1 in Winnipeg, specifically I went to school for criminal justice and sociology at University of Winnipeg and have taken an interesting route, but mostly involved in community organizing in Winnipeg, specifically around abolition and our city budget and how that relates to community care, as well as, and most importantly, Red River Echoes, because it's been the most fulfilling organizing and collective that I've been a part of. And I am Kiana Durston. I am also a Métis woman from Red River. My family came from St. Anne's, although I grew up in Treaty 1 in Winnipeg, along with Chantal and Brianne. I went to school for environmental science at the University of Manitoba, and I work now as an aquatic science technician on Lake Winnipeg. I have been a member with Red River Echoes, and connecting and reconnecting to the land has been really fulfilling for me within this group. Red River Echoes is a collective of Métis people from Red River, but I think we have other members from northern Manitoba as well, or whose families come from there. We formed in March of this year. We are a Métis collective and we're focused on land back and active reclamation of Métis sovereignty in Winnipeg. And that includes like restoring kinship relations, restoring practices like visiting, and then that also includes advocating the recognition that our liberation as Métis people is tied up with the liberation of our First Nations relatives and our Black relatives. 
We formed directly in response to President David Chartrand of the Manitoba Métis Federation taking out a full-page ad in the Winnipeg Free Press in support of the Winnipeg Police Service. This was close to the year anniversary of Aisha Hudson, a 16-year-old Anishinaabe girl who was murdered by Winnipeg police. It was close to the one-year anniversary of that. I think it was just sort of the last straw for many of us young Métis people and some not so young. But I think what really grounded us and brought us together was just like the pure shock and anger over our Métis government supporting the Winnipeg police in that way and in such a violent way to Aisha Hudson and her family. <laughs> we got into a lot of trouble with <laughs> the Manitoba Métis Federation for that. We launched an open letter saying that we disagree with David Chartrand supporting the Winnipeg police, that as Métis people, we don't believe in colonial police on our lands. And the next day he told us that anybody who questions his government can go to hell. <laughs> so we came into the scene with a bang, I guess, in that way. Since then, we've just been working together to give a different perspective of what Métis governance can look like. So yeah, we, we formed in response to the police ad, but I think it was also a longer standing sentiment of not feeling like the Manitoba Métis Federation was representative of who we were as Métis people in Red River. I would say that it was very affirming to meet so many Métis folks that have felt the same way about how we were governed and like the ways in which we would like to see that change. What are some of those broader concerns about the MMF? I think a very common concern is that the MMF is turning into something that is replicating colonial governments. And when that is happening, that's placing Métis people, Métis people who don't have their voice aside from who says they are their voice, i.e. the MMF, placing them in a very tough spot because we don't feel that way. And if our government, and I'm using air quotes here, is replicating colonial government structures, colonial government standpoints, colonial government talking points, then we're doing harm to the people that we stand in solidarity with always and always have been. And if we look at the history of Métis people in Manitoba, in Red River, that's not how Métis people were brought about. That's not how Métis people govern themselves. And going back to that ad being the catalyst, many Métis people don't feel the way that David Chartrand wants us to feel. One of the big concerns, too, is repairing the relationship that we have with our First Nations relatives. Historically, as Métis people, we've lived on these lands in good relationship with our Cree relatives, with our Anishinaabe relatives. And restoring those practices and honoring that and recognizing that those legal systems, those kinship systems, they're all still there. And that we as Métis people have a responsibility to live up to those. As Métis people, the lands that we live on, the only reason why we were able to live here was because we were in good relation with our relatives. And so we need to go back to that or else we're just replicating harm. Another thing, too, in regards to the MMF and some of the issues, it's structurally set up as a corporation, and that's not democracy. You know, it's not democracy if it's just cabinet ministers making decisions that nobody really knows about and that they're dressed in really fancy legal language at general assemblies. And it's a very isolating process. You know, it takes Métis people out of our government system, out of the way that we own ourselves and the way that we decide for ourselves. So the MMF published the ad. Then you issued the open letter. How did you end up deciding to become something ongoing? I think an important thing to note here, too, is how many people reached out anonymously or with their own names, but were 
very afraid of speaking out against this Métis Federation government. If people are afraid to speak out against their so-called leaders, what's that telling you about how people are so-called leading? I think that that was also a driving point in knowing that we were doing the right thing because of how much, and I'm using air quotes again, but like trouble this was causing. And I think that that was exactly why we decided to even continue as a group. Just like seeing how many people were so excited to finally see that there was a group, like a collective of people who were willing to speak up and to say that what David Chartrand is doing is not representative of all Métis people. I think it was just really overwhelming for the first little while. The other thing that made us decide to keep working as a collective was that we all just really loved being around each other and that there was so much healing going on for us, just even as individuals coming together and, you know, healing our own relationships with ourselves and with community and really coming back into that as Métis people. And I think that was really exciting for us. So then after that, we just started doing stuff. We've done a number of things and all of the actions that we are taking as a collective are always rooted in our relations, our relations to the land, our relations to community, our relations to ourselves, our relations to one another. And that's not just as Métis people, but that's also relations to, you know, our First Nation kin, our Black relatives, our folks of colour that are also our relatives. So we've taken a number of actions in a very short time that have been very intense, very aggressive in terms of like our immediate response to certain things. So for example, July 1st, a number of us in Treaty 1 in Winnipeg, we attended the walk for, you know, shortly after 2.15. And that's a reference to the discovery of unmarked graves at residential school sites. We attended that walk together as a collective. Within two blocks, there was a violent arrest happening of a First Nations man. And myself and other collective members were immediately involved in the de-arrest of that person. And it was pretty intense. And then the march continued on. There was a few dozen of us that were a part of this de-arrest. And by the time we got to the Manitoba legislature, the statue was starting to come down. And it was just like this really euphoric space to be a part of that. But the first thought after that statue came down and after we all left was, okay, how do we assist? Because we know our relatives who were associated with that. How do we help them now? So we started a bail fund. We put a call out and we brought in legal funds for folks who are going to need it. Nothing has happened yet. About two months ago, the police said that they passed on everything to the prosecutor. So we're just awaiting that. Obviously, we don't believe that any colonial statue or any colonial figure should be honored. And to be able to come together so quickly, to be able to support folks who are taking direct action like that is so incredibly important. And then I think we immediately moved on to our renaming of Wolseley where in one night we put up about 200 posters in a Wolseley neighborhood, specifically calling for the renaming of this violent colonial figure who came to our lands with the intent to eradicate us. And the response to that was also great. A lot of support. And then you get, you know, the few naysayers. We followed up with a renaming rendezvous in traditional Métis ways. You know, we had our food and we had a circle to talk about things and we had a silent auction for folks. And then we've kind of moved on to a number of different projects that are all on the go right now. 
It seems too that all of our decisions happened so fast and they did. Everything came together so quickly, but it was able to go the pace that it did because we were also intentional with the decisions and the way in which we wanted to take those actions. And they were all intentional to like the relations that we have for each other and for the land and for our relatives. When each project and each action came up, we were like, okay, yeah, this is clearly the right decision for our whole collective and where we want to go from here. It's so refreshing to be a part of, and especially like myself being a part of multiple organizing entities that are draining because they're very white-centered spaces. And very often I'm the Indigenous person in those spaces. And it's very draining. But I think with everything our collective has done, it doesn't feel that way because not only are we organizing, but we're healing ourselves in that same process. And when we don't have that capacity, we also have healing circles to support one another. I totally agree. It's the most energizing collective I've ever been a part of. For a group that uses consensus-based decision-making and rotational leadership, we're really, really effective despite that. I think some people might be scared to use looser models of organizing. But for us, we've really found that like we have a constitution, we have a structure set out and everything, but we also recognize that we are human and that we need to be flexible with each other and with ourselves. And it's worked really, really well so far. I feel like it's so easy for us to agree on what those intentions are because we're rooting this all in who we are as Métis people and our laws and these very like ancestral, historic things that live inside of us. And tapping into that power that we have as Indigenous peoples, as sovereign peoples on our own lands, being able to root all of our decisions in that has made it really easy. You know, like we just do the thing that's right. And I actually have a Gabrielle Dumont quote <laughs> that I just wanted to share. It says, no people in the world are as strong and good as the Métis. Given a choice between riches and their rights, they would choose rights and everything would be right in the end. Like we're here to fight for our rights, to fight for our people, to fight for our lands. And so when we're focused on that, it's really easy to be like, okay, let's do this big thing because that's what our ancestors did. You know, our ancestors were the last people to lead an armed resistance against the Canadian state. What a powerful legacy for us to live up to. What can you say in general terms about the membership of the collective? Most of our members are based in Winnipeg. We do have members all across the homeland, though. I think we have 30 members. We have like a process for welcoming in folks. We might only have 30 members right now, but like the amount of people who have reached out that we've had to develop a process for to intake and like have not been able to keep up because, you know, with the organizing, like the interest and the amount of people who are wanting to join is high. Our membership is quite young, probably like between 20 and 45. But at the same time, we're not just working with ourselves. Like we also reach out to communities. So we have elders that we are in contact with and that are at our healing circles, different things like that. So even though our membership is more on the younger side, we're still focused on the intergenerational aspect of our work. We recognize that unless we're consulting elders, we're not going to be doing this in a good way. We have been really intentional about making sure that while we have members, Red River Echoes doesn't just belong to us. It's a larger thing, I guess, for Métis people. Even if somebody's not necessarily a member, we still see them as part of our Red River Echoes family. When it comes to our constitution, we have, like Brianna said, 30 members. However, those are people that maybe have the capacity to be active in the circles and decisions and actions that we take. 
but we have a larger group of community members who may not be involved with weekly meetings and decision makings that we're doing, but they are still involved with the events that we put on. You've mentioned the importance for the collective of grounding your work in relations, including with your First Nations kin and with Black and racialized relatives. How does consciousness of those relations play into the group's activities? So I think that that is shown through our continuous actions. All of our decisions are guided by community, and we're not doing anything that is specifically for us. So an upcoming thing that we've been planning for a little bit is a land back bus. We're planning to fund this bus. A lot of it goes back to a another initiative that got us a grant to go back to Batash. It was basically a land back trip for Métis people. Initially, the thought was that we could maybe get a land back bus to drive to Batash and, you know, go on this land back trip and go back to Métis roots and go to the history, go to the site, go and be with ancestors, be with that knowledge, be with community in Batash. And it didn't work out that we got the bus for Batash, but, you know, maybe we rented some SUVs and had some land back SUVs. But that trip brought a lot for us, individually, collectively, as a whole. And after that trip, it was like, yeah, this needs to happen. Not only for us, but for a lot of people. A big barrier to land back is not only that the land was taken from us, is that we actually physically cannot get there. And so with the land back bus, not only can we use it to go back to land as a Métis collective, but also share it with our relatives so that they too can go back to the land, that they can use it in ways that they feel is in a healing way or a way that they, you know, feel that they need to use it. And it's things like that that really guide where this collective is going because we could easily, you know, get a bus and just be like, oh, it's the Red River Echoes bus. But like our immediate thought was this needs to be for all of us. And we need to do it in a way where all of us can use this vehicle in a collective way, in relation with one another, in a community way. And we need to be able to use this to heal ourselves, to empower our communities, and to further land back within our relations. You know, as Métis people, we've historically lived between two worlds, so to speak. We have a very <laughs> interesting history as a people, as, you know, a very new nation and an Indigenous nation that occurred post-contact. So that's what guides us, is, you know, knowing that we have this unique position as Métis people of, you know, being traditionally these go-betweens or people who are able to communicate across different languages, you know, different cultures and being a bridge in that way. Historically, colonial institutions have tried to like beat us down to the point where we just kind of align within white Canada, I guess I could call it that, and go within the structures that they would like us to go. That has created a lot of disruption within our relations. And I think it is radical of us to be able to say, no, we're not going to be following this path of destruction of our relations with one another. And we're going to take the time to heal that and support one another and be there for each other and make those decisions that are going to help our First Nation relatives and not just help ourselves. How do you understand the kinds of actions that your group has taken as building towards that different vision of governance that you mentioned in the context of the Métis Nation? The Métis people have historically been called the people who own themselves. 
So the idea that we have a fixed centralized government, an institution like the MMF, isn't historically accurate. Even our provisional government that Louis Riel created, that was a provisional government. It was not supposed to be permanent. Our leadership, the way that Métis people have historically governed themselves, has been for temporary times and for a purpose. And otherwise, we are people who own ourselves and we are in good relation with others, following law, but recognizing that we are fiercely independent, fiercely stubborn peoples, and actually taking that seriously and owning that. And so I think every time we take an action, it's how can we own ourselves? How can we show Métis sovereignty? How can we live Métis sovereignty? Just for example, like the renaming rendezvous that we had in the Wolsey area, regardless of what the outcomes may be in terms of the name, the fact that there was a group of Métis people on Métis land in the middle of Winnipeg talking about the genocide that occurred and still being here and being proud to be Métis still and just actually taking up a physical space, I think has been part of it as well for us. You know, just the physicality of that. It's kind of hard to think about sovereignty in like a practical way. But I think what we're experiencing is that when we gather and when we are together, that's exercising sovereignty. What else do you want listeners to know about what Red River Echoes has planned for the next while? So there's the land back bus that we'll be doing a call out for. But then in the new year, we are going to be doing a teach-in on abolition. We're looking to develop a workbook and plan the whole like facilitation process and the content and talk about the history of policing, how it relates to Métis people on this land specifically. And we're also going to talk about future building and we're going to start talking about what it's going to look like when the Winnipeg police no longer exist here. Next summer, we're also planning to go back to Batoche again. But who knows what's going to happen? Who knows uh, what decisions we'll make and what actions will need to be taken before then? I think another fun thing that's coming up is we are putting out a t-shirt, a statue toppling tour t-shirt, recognizing all the folks across Turtle Island who have toppled colonial statues, starting with John A. Macdonald in Montreal in August of 2020 leading up to July or August of 2021 and all the statues that were toppled in that time frame, which is going to be a really fun project. And this is to help fund the Land Back Bus. It's something that kind of recognizes statues are going to keep coming down and is also able to have an impact and also fund something that's incredibly important for folks in Treaty 1. On July 1st, when the statues came down at the Winnipeg Legislative Grounds, it was a moment of feeling like this is our land and we're sovereign here and we can pull down statues of colonial figureheads. And that's our right to do that. And experiencing that was super empowering. We see the taking down of statues as active reclamation of sovereignty. Oh, and we are going to be putting together a Patreon to fund all of these actions and activities that we'll be doing as a collective and in the community. We're not 100% sure what that's going to look like at the moment. We're just putting it all together, but that is something to look for. You have been listening to my interview with Brianne Lavallee-Heckert, Chantelle Garand, and Kiana Durston of Red River Echoes. To learn more about the group, search for Red River Echoes using your favorite search engine. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.